This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week on the podcast, we welcome renowned photographer Sally Mann, whose works are included in the permanent collections at the Whitney Museum and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, among many others. Mann came to the library this spring to celebrate the release of her latest book, Hold Still, a memoir with photographs. In this conversation with NYPL's Jessica Strand, Mann discusses memory, mortality, and how she crafted a striking personal history through image and narrative. Um, I told you, it's like a mosh pit at a rock concert. Whoops, sorry, that's the front door? Yeah, it's something, that's the front door. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, and if you don't understand me, please raise your hand and I'll repeat my question. Anyway, um, let's begin with the construction of the memoir. Um, you know, how did you create this kind of collage of memory? It's be I'm so far from you, I'm gonna move over. Yeah, and then we can really chat, here we go. I was, I, the book is constructed really beautifully and, and, and it's unusual. And um, I'm wondering how, I mean, I, we're going to talk about the ephemera and everything, but I'm wondering, you know, how you decided to structure it this way. Because it, it has a collage feeling, a kind of pastiche feeling in certain ways. That's just it. I mean, I didn't decide it. I mean, I was completely ambushed by this book. And I guess I was sort of susceptible to being ambushed to it, by it because I had written the Massey Lectures at, I'd been asked to deliver these Massey Lectures at Harvard, um, and I pulled those things together over the course of a year, and by the time I had done those three, then it just seemed simple enough, you know, it, it seemed so innocent, you know, I'll just finish, I'll just do one more chapter, and then one more chapter ended up being, you know, 500 words, pages, sorry. Um. I, you have so much amazing ephemera and like, you know, you have these like, you know, uh, horse show medals in there and you have, you know, notes from your teachers about how you're fabulous, how you're too rebellious, how you're difficult, report cards. And I was, you know, I wondered when you opened, when you, st when you opened that first box and you took the twine off and you probably opened the tape and you started going through things, what was, what hit you first? I mean, what were you like, wow, this is, this is the beginning of something good? It depends on what box you're talking about. Um, the, the boxes that I opened that had the twine on them were the boxes of my uh, forebears, my mother's and father's families. And I, I mean, I was stunned by the level of um, um, collection that they had, they saved everything. And I don't know if that's just unique to our um, OCD family. I, I, I don't know. I, I've done a little research on hoarding in recent weeks, and I'm beginning to wonder about, about the genetics of this um, family. But there was just a ton of stuff in there. There was ship's manifests and menus and, you know, dried flowers and love notes and, 
and rings that had had the, the diamonds pried out of them. And it's just, there was just all this stuff. I mean, it all amazed me. And yeah. how did you start? I mean, how did I start? Um, I started basically by stringing this whole concatenation of stories together that I told for years. You know when you go to a dinner party, you always have like one or two stories that you tell? Yeah. You yeah. know? Well, I realized that those half dozen, dozen stories that I'd been telling for years were sort of turning into my life. And when, when, you, when you string them all together, you really have something. And then all the evidence for those stories, like, I don't know if any of you have read the book or not, but the, the love affair with, that my grandmother had with a man named Uncle Skip and blah, blah, blah. All the evidence was in those boxes, so I was able to actually tie stuff down with physical evidence, and that was the most shocking thing. The diaries, the journals, the, just, you know, the newspaper accounts, all that stuff, it was all there. Um, and also, I mean, the, the stories about your family and about Larry's family yeah. um, uh, are, I mean, your parents and the dogs and his parents and their aspirations. And, but I was wondering, you know, from these families, you were able to create your own family and this kind of world of the farm. And I'm, I'm just wondering when you when you landed on this piece of land and you created this, I mean, a family and a kind of freedom and a place where you could do your work. And I mean, was this a dream that you had in mind when you saw this piece of land and that you wanted to have children and you wanted, I mean, that you were going to create or not really? Well, it, it, the farm was always just kind of a refuge. It was a summer place. It was the place we went, we spent at least three months out there. It's where I took almost all the family pictures. But we hadn't really thought about moving there until um, Larry, Larry was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy and our house was multi-leveled and we realized we weren't, weren't gonna be able to live in this funky-ass house we had built um, over like 20 years. It was someone, an airplane pilot once described it as the looking from above like the uh, shanty homes around the um, Mexico City dump. I mean, it was a completely not-to-code, absolutely cobbled-together, ridiculous house, but it was nothing but multi-layers, so, and levels, and we had to somehow figure out a way to build a house that was all on one level so that Larry could get around. So it, it was sort of born of necessity and then proved to be just absolutely the most felicitous decision we've ever, we've ever made. Um, I'm going to read a quote of yours from the book um, and, and I, I'm really curious about if you could just explain the end of it to me. You say, to be able to take my pictures, I have to look all that time at the people and place I care about. And I must do so with both ardor and cool appraisal, with the passions of eye and heart. But in that ardent heart, there must be a splinter of ice. And I, I would like you to tell me about that splinter of ice. I think uh, what I was writing about at the time um, was portraiture. Uh, and that is where you really need the splinter of ice because it's so, so easy to um, take advantage of a photographic subject and I think that it's a like, deeply uh, ethically complex um, uh, situation when you're photographing someone because you as the photographer hold all the cards, you always do, um, and your subject is completely vulnerable to you. 
And if, if without that little sliver of ice, you can't take the tough pictures. In my case, I take the tough pictures, and I'm, I'm, I was particularly talking about a series of pictures I did of Larry, um, and we were exploring the nature of his, of his um, physical disability as a result of the disease. And those pictures were tough to take. He's a much braver man than, than I am a photographer, and he was perfectly willing to have me take the pictures. But I had to say to myself, okay, I'm, I'm going to take this picture. It's painful, it's painful for both of us, but I'm going to take this picture. There's, there's your sliver of ice. Um, but I'm not, I'm not capable of taking, I've found that the question of dignity, of the dignity of my subject is really, really important to me um, as I you know, go forward and, and am doing portraits again. That's really important not to, not to, not to hurt people with, with photography. And it's very, very easy to do. Um, I'm gonna ask you just this one question about immediate family. Good, uh, just which, one. Yeah, because there's been... I had a real grilling from Terry Gross yesterday, yesterday and I was and just, all she wanted to talk about was those naked children. Oh, which, I, it doesn't, I don't want to, I mean, I, I actually was thinking about the controversy and I, and I'm going to sound like a, a feminist here, but I wondered if, if this would ever happen to a man. I mean, I, I just couldn't help but think as I looked at the Jock Sturgis and as David Hamilton and whomever else, right. I thought, is this our idea? Uh, I mean, because you're a photographer and a mother, a woman. I mean, is this all sort of mucked up and the fuss was made? And if, if the fuss would be made if you were male? And I, I wondered what you thought, or that didn't come into play, or uh, what, do you, what are your... I think the fuss would have been worse if I was a male, actually. Yeah. I do. I do. I think, I think I was given a little latitude because I was a woman and because I was a mother. So, I mean, I'd, I, what do you all think? Do you th don't you think it would have been worse if I'd been a man? And Yeah, I think there was a... I mean, I think there's a sort of maternal passion or a parent, there's a parental ardor that you're allowed and and the mothers are allowed are given I think a little more latitude and flexibility and so you that. think it protected you I do level. think it yeah. protected me yeah I do um, yeah. okay out of your as you look at those landscapes of all the the moss hanging and the, the <laughs> southern the southern world uh, that you create so beautifully I'm wondering I, I mean I see you as sort of part of the southern canon and I was wondering of Southern writers and artists, you know, who, who you may be influenced by or who you really respect or who you find in some way makes its way into your work yeah. or that you think about. Is, is that something that you consider or...? Well, sure. I mean, yeah. literature was really important to me. When I, I went to a school called Putney up in Vermont, and I was just an ignorant Appalachian cracker when I got there. I mean, I was wearing my boyfriend's, you know, football jacket, his football sweater with the, you know, I just was hopeless. And I get there and I have this, what I call an awakening. Um, and a lot of it, a lot of it was um, due to someone handed me, well, it was either the sound and the fury or light in August. And that's where it all started for me. You know, of course, it all started with Faulkner. Faulkner yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I went back and reread him, and he still holds up. 
Yeah, no. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I actually think some of the titles of his books could be the titles of your photographs. Yeah, yeah. that's true. I mean, um, I, Imagine him stealing from me like that. <laughs> um, I, uh, it, I, I, you were first. I mean, I, not that this is part, but I, I mean, you do mention that early on. I mean, you didn't know much about photography, and yeah. uh, but you, you started writing poetry, you were interested in poetry, right. and you were interested in photography both sort of at the same time, and then photography slowly took over, obviously, and it became a, a Well, I could earn a living as a photographer. photographer. That's, that's really the crux of the matter, because when Larry and I got married, I was 18, or just maybe, no, I was a month into 19, and my parents said, good luck, good luck, you guys. Larry was 21, I was 19, and we had, at that point, like $100 in our checking account. And I just had to earn a living. I always had to earn a living. And it, you can't earn a living right. in no, writing no, poetry. No. You can now, but you couldn't back then. Well, hardly. But well, you can now because there was that huge donation to I the... I know, yeah, Poetry the, Magazine, exactly. which changed everyone's it lives. It changed all poets' lives, but... Were there people that you, when you got to Putney, was there a photographer that someone presented to you? There were photographs or... You mean they, a living photographer? Or yeah, was I mean, a, a photographs that you saw that a teacher oh. turned you on to or... No, I never took a photography class. No, I just hung out with my boyfriend, and he was a photographer. And so you just yeah. learned. Yeah. Yeah, there it went. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. No, I've never, I've never studied photography. I took an Ansel Adams workshop, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and all I did there was drink. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I, I want to talk to you about photographing the body, because it fascinates you, or it seems to, the decomposing body, yeah. the ill body the child body, you know, there's so yeah, many, you know, um, and, and what you find so compelling about, I mean, because, you know, a body of your work, so to speak, uh, is, I mean, you, they're, they're the decomposing bodies. And yeah. so it seems to factor large, and I'm wondering what it is that's so compelling for you. Uh, you'd think I'd have an answer to that. I, I don't know that it's the body that's compelling, but certainly in the case of the decomposing bodies, the, all that body... Geez, are we going to be able to have this <laughs> sentence without using the word body, body 15 times? That whole series of pictures was... I mean, that was about death as much sure. as anything else. And on, on the most fundamental level, there you have to deal with the dead body. So, so it was sort of in service of that overarching concept of of death, and I, I, I approached it from a lot of different directions, from the landscape, from the actual bodies, from the, the, the death of the dog, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you talk yeah. about that. You talk about your father's fascination with death in the yeah. book, and then your fascination sort of through him. Yeah, or I mean, it seemed to run on that side of the family. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the dog is an interesting... Yeah. But that was really, I think, the precursor to then the decomposing body. That's later. Right. That's you know. right. Well, it, it, the, the dog dies. Then this um, escaped convict is dies. Is well, he isn't shot to death. He shoots himself right in front of my kitchen window, and I begin to wonder about the idea of what it means for a death to occur on a piece of land, and whether it somehow, you know ineluctably and irrevocably changes the nature of that land. And then, of course, that just led me to the battlefields, which is that whole notion writ large. So it's, yeah, so I, so I approached it from all those different angles. I mean, you push and things to the limits. I seem to push 
things to the limits, even without meaning to. In but some without cases. fear. But with also without fear. I mean, when I, I'm uh, scared now. Well, I mean, <laughs> I retrospect. Do it and then I and then I see people's reactions, and I went. Well, oh, when oh, you oh, talk God. about being alone with those decomposing dead bodies oh, yeah. to be left, I mean that. They're not haunting you every night. The sort of maggot-eaten no, no, is, is, no, no, is extraordinary. I, I mean, mean I, you know, I think I would, though you do say um, that you, the photograph that you took of your father dead, yeah. does, that is a different thing entirely. It took, me, it took me two hours to screw up the courage to just take, it's a, it's a 35 millimeter snapshot. I mean, I didn't even set up the view camera for that. Right. Well, that's so, very different because yeah. you, you knew him. Yeah. It's different no. than watching a body. And then it's really a sort of scientific experiment. And, yeah. Uh, and, it's, yeah. And, and you can objectify it in a way that you can't when you have a deep relationship yeah. with somebody. I mean, and, and, I, and the bodies that were lying there, I knew that they had signed a release saying, we're putting our bodies out here for science and you can do whatever you want with them. You can, you know, bury them in concrete or stick them in a car trunk or hang them from a tree or whatever. They'd signed off on their bodies, which is extraordinarily courageous and commendable and those people are, who do that are, are wonderful and you know I guess in a certain sense they were signing off for my exploration of death as well. Right, no, it's, yeah. an, it's an amazing and those photographs are, are really something. I, I want to know of your work currently what, what photographs are you sort of most, to say most proud is a strange thing but you feel most connected to at the moment. You mean right now? What yeah, are, right now. Well, anytime you ask someone, a, a writer or an artist of any sort, you it's know. what they're probably working well, yeah, on right. currently. What, what's your favorite body of work? They're going to tell you, oh, the, whatever they're doing right then, yeah. you know, that's the thing that's the most important to them. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to um, uh, break that paradigm. Um, I am working on a project involving race. I think the legacy, and I'm so inarticulate about this, and it's such an inchoate project that just don't make fun of me about it. But it, um, I'm interested in the legacy of slavery because as you know I come from Virginia and Virginia was the biggest slaveholding state in the Union and almost every slave came into America on the James River and from there you know we're, dissem we're disseminated around the country. Um, so I became fascinated with that whole legacy which is just one more thing that's going to come back to bite me in the ass, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but I've, d I've done a series for the last oh, eight years or so of pictures of, um, of black men. Um, and I'm not talking Maplethorpe-like pictures. Um, and I'm trying to sort of weave a, a I'm trying to t see if I can enlarge the concept with other, other ways besides these portraits of, them, of the black men. So as soon as I get done with this book, I'm going to go back to being a photographer. But you talk about race a bit. And I do. Yeah, There's a whole of, chapter on, on race. race. And you, yeah. the woman who helped really bring you up, Cece. Right. right? Gigi. Gigi. Yeah. Gigi, Cece. Um, is, you know, factored large in, in yeah. your... And also with stories of... And, and, and her affection and yeah. all of it factored large yeah. in your life. I mean... Yeah. No, I, I was so lucky, just like so many um, Southern middle class and, and upper class southerners. We, everyone was raised by black women. You can't throw a dead cat without hitting someone who's, you know, talking about their, you know, their beloved retainer. Well, I'm one of those people and she, she was, she's beloved beyond all telling. Um, she's dead now. 
She worked for my family for 50 years and was truly the only reliable source of something I wasn't even sure I believed in, but unconditional love that I had um, in my life. And so there's a whole chapter, a, a peon to her in, in the book. She's, she was an amazing woman. And, it was, and, and her, my experience with her and her family was sort of the springboard for this whole investigation of into, into race. And, you know, I think it's a deeply Southern question, and I seem to be, um, you know, relentlessly checking through all the Southern questions yeah, <laughs> photographically. I, um, I wanted to know while you were writing, you know, uh, what, what you learned about yourself that you didn't know or, you know, I mean, I heard you say that essentially you learned about your mother in ways that you wish you had known her better. That right. With going through, I would imagine, all these boxes and also piecing together this really compelling, interesting, independent woman who you really didn't feel you had access to, nor were you. And I'm wondering through the process what you learned. I mean, your mother, what were the things that, that sort of came to light for you? I guess to a certain extent I learned the mendacity of family lore. For example, it was always said that my father went around the world with a, um, with a backpack, hardly even a backpack, just a little throw, um, that contained a tuxedo and the complete works of Plato. And that was one of my dinner, dinner table stories, right? He went around the world on a motorcycle with a tuxedo and, and Plato, and then so I, so I delve into his records and expecting to find, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, you remember those explorers who went to the North Pole and they found them all frozen because they hadn't packed food in their bags or clothes, right. but what they packed were things like, uh, you know, the Vicar of Wakefield and backgammon <laughs> games and monogram cutlery and, you know, button polishers and all these things that they didn't need, right? And then, of course, they froze to death. Well, you know, my father was a little like that, but in fact, or at least my feeling was, he had, um, he had, in fact, not packed a tuxedo, but he did pack white kidskin gloves. So all these, yeah, all, I, I learned that all these stories, that, you know, many of the stories that I took to be truth are, were not truth. So that was a little disconcerting, right. having to readjust my whole assessment. And that's just a tip, that's just one example. There were dozens of things that, um, even things right down to the very minute the book was going to press, my brother called me up and he said, you didn't go to Florida with daddy, I went to Florida with daddy. And I said, I didn't? You know, the, the treachery of memory was one of the main things that, that, that flows through this whole book, is the things that I remember that, are, that were incorrect. Um, and even right down, you know, even yesterday, don't ask me about yesterday, I'm not even sure. And also the treachery of uh, photography and how it how it affects memory. I'm really, I am going to answer your question. No, 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 I'm interested. Please, yeah, please. No, but, I mean, because it is something you deal with in the book, that photographs are, well, I mean, they can, they can really skew memory in certain ways. Well, I think ways, they steal they, memory. Right, I mean, right. that's what I say in the book. I think they not, if they don't steal it, they definitely impoverish uh, memory. I mean, I can remember things much better if I don't have a picture of it than if I do have a picture of it. Now, I was talking to Malcolm Jones the other day, and he says that when he looks at a picture, he sees, and he sees himself in this pair of, like, violin case-sized brogans, and he can remember the smell of the leather and the 
the thickness of the leather and the discomfort of the shoe and, you know, how tight his underwear were. And he can remember all this stuff based on a picture. I can't do that. I look at a picture and I go completely blank. Whereas if I try and remember a scene adjacent to the picture, I can actually bring it up in my memory with full sensory complement, with smell, taste, texture, that kind of stuff. I mean, if I'm lucky. Well, that's, I mean, I think going through all this ephemera must have been strange in some way because, you know, our stories about ourselves that we cobble together over time. Yeah. And we don't really have examples of this or that, but they become, they become the fabric of ourselves. Right. And then suddenly to sort of go, no, right. that's not right. Yeah. I mean, no, he wasn't that at all. Or yeah. she actually had red hair. Why was I remembering her as a blonde? Oh, I know. And I she know. was a real hussy. Yeah. You know, or... I know. God, so, she was alcoholic? I never knew. Right. You know, I mean, so I, I think that, I mean, there, there's a lot of that in the book, which I find yeah. um, playful and, and really interesting. I, I want, because we're getting to the end of this, I wanted to ask a couple more questions. One was, as the, now the book is out... And, uh, one day. One day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you've had reviews and you've had these interviews. Is the reaction what you thought? Is it, is it a strange thing, having talked about your life in this way? I mean, you've been telling, I mean, you tell it in some pictures and with examples, but now you've written. Yeah. And does that feel, it's such a different approach. Yeah. Does it feel... It, you know... You, with writing, you can be so much more particular, and you really get it down. And as Nabokov once said, someone asked him, so what did you mean by that? And he said, do you want me to say it worse? You know, <laughs> by the, it, it's one thing with a photograph, which is so open to interpretation. Right, right. But when you write it down in a book like that, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty much my final oh, yeah. word on the subject. Oh, sure. you know? absolutely. <laughs> so it is kind of nice to be able to, to have the final word on the subject right. and to be able to write it and where it's you know so much less open to interpretation than than photographs. So it's done. It's done. Yeah. And now you're sort of taking the ride through talking about it. Well, yeah. It, Which is you know it, what it, it is. is. Yeah. Well, it's. Talking about it is not my strong suit, but you've been really, really gracious in your questions. <laughs> so I I, I'm say. now going to ask you, because we're in a library, Yes. Uh, what you've been reading that you really have enjoyed lately. Ah, well, I was asked that. Uh, I read this book called Ant, um, A Constellation of Vital Phenomenon. Has anyone read that? Isn't it great? So I, um, I read it. I'm an insomniac. And um, I read it one night, and I read right straight through till, it took two, two, two insomniac nights. I read straight through till 4.30, and I closed it and picked it back up and read it, started all over again at 4.30 in the morning. It was that good. Wow. And then I get up and I write him a fan letter, and I say, Dear Anthony, look, I'm really sorry to write you. I don't want to bother you. I just want you to know how much your book meant to me. <laughs> Enough to read it twice in Enough to 48 read it twice. hours or 24 yeah. hours. Yeah. Um, are there certain classics that you go back to? Um, um, a book that I just went back to, and it's not a classic and probably I wonder how many of you have even read it, The Transit of Venus. Yes, great. Shirley Hazard. I love yeah. that book. Great. Shirley Hazard. Y'all just go, go right out there and buy The Transit of Venus. It's a great book. It's, it's, not, a great book. it's not a classic classic. Well, I mean... I mean, Nabokov. If you're talking classics, yeah. you're talking And Nabokov. which of Nabokovs do you like? Oh, that, my brother asked me that yesterday. 
Um, I, back when I was reading it really intensely, I like Pale Fire yeah, the most. Yeah. But I just, I've read Lolita probably five times, so I still think it's brilliant. Just it brilliant. is great. Yeah. yeah, and I just finished reading Speak Memory for the fifth time, I think. And I'm very glad I didn't read it before I wrote but my the, own. I was going to say, <laughs> I would never have written that. I would have just been completely abashed. <laughs> well, thank you so oh, much so for talking with me yeah. today. Um, so I'm going to ask some questions. Uh, so I'm going to give my microphone over here to this lady. And I'm going to point. And we'll probably take four questions, all right? So please ask away. Hi, Sally. It's Hi. great great to hear you this oh, morning. Oh, thanks. Um, uh, and I won't ask any tough questions. Oh, good. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, Terry really, I, no, am, no, no, I am still bruised yeah, from sure. that interview. I'm sure. Are there, well, hopefully this will be a lot easier. Are there any photographers, uh, either past or, or contemporary, who have inspired you or who you admire? Oh, so many. I mean, and oh, I, get, I, I should have these right on the tip of my tongue. There are just... I'm an inveterate magpie borrower of other people's work. I mean, it would be, you'd be here all afternoon if I started listing the people that I admire. Um, do you mean like super, super contemporary people? I'm kind of crazy about this guy named Chris McCaw right now. Do you know his work? He's, um, he works with um, paper, paper negatives, and he puts them in his view camera, and the cameras are getting this big now. And he, he exposes the, the paper to the sun, and the sun actually burns the photographic paper because it goes through the lens. And it's just, I mean, it's such a simple idea, but it's so clever, and the results are beautiful. So he's somebody that I'm really fond of. Yeah, who, who are you looking at? Sorry. Oh, sorry, we're... Well, whether uh, any portraiture people like Annie Leibovitz have inspired you, or whether you you admire their work, her work, or uh, yeah, she's know. a great she's a great portrait artist, no question about that. Yeah. Hi. Uh, when I see photographs, I'm always drawn more into black and white, especially with portraits. And I was wondering if you can explain why that people would like black and white rather than color. You know, it may just be you and me. <laughs> I'm not sure everybody does like black and white as well. I love it. I love it. And I, this is going to sound really condescending, but I think color is easier to, to do. I think it's easier to make a picture in color, frankly, um, than it is to make it in black and white. You have just so many more possibilities for, for compositional and tonal and felicitous arrangements of things if the color is there to play off of its, you know, each color can play off the other. So I think, I think black and white is harder, but I also think it has a certain gravitas that color doesn't have. And, I, I, and that may be just um, arrogance on my part. And, and I think it's much harder, I said it, I think it's much harder so that it, it somehow seems a little more powerful to me. Do you, do you agree? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry, I guess I shouldn't ask you questions. <laughs> Hi. Um, in your image making process, and I'm sure it's different for like landscapes than it would be for portraiture, um, how much of your final product is kind of like something that you've already envisioned? Um, and I know you use a lot of different 
mediums and, and some vintage lenses and things like that. Right. So going into the image, you have to have some sort of an idea of what you're, what you're looking for, but um, I was just wondering about your process in that well, way. Well, I, I sort of talk very briefly about that in the book, but with the, like, when I was working with the At 12 and the family pictures, a lot of those were pretty carefully thought out, and, and, I, and when I would see a situation, I'd try and imagine what the picture would look like, and what was most freeing about going out and doing the landscapes was that, I mean, I would almost just close my eyes and rotate the camera around and, and, let the, and let the viewfinder actually find the picture and then try and make something interesting out of it. It was an entirely different aesthetic exercise. And I loved it, you know. It didn't, it didn't, I used to always wait for the right kind of light when I would do the pictures of the children, you know, late afternoon or overcast and all that kind of stuff. But with the landscape, it was completely freeing. I would photograph in any kind of light. I would shoot into the sun. I would, you know, it just, so it, it really depends on the body of work. And, and it depends on what the image is in service of, so to speak. I mean, with these black men, I'm pretty sure I know what I want. So, you know, I, I'll say, would you extend your arm? Or would you, you know, would you touch, you know, would you touch your forearm? And I'll actually kind of direct the picture. So it really depends, but it's much more fun if you just go out in the landscape and set your camera up and, you know, wait for something to happen or, you know, wait for your eye to turn on, so to speak. Yeah. Thank you for being here. And I was just curious about something that came up just now in your conversation about why you remember things better when uh, it's not a photograph. I was so curious about if you had thought about that. Yeah, I thought I, I, there's probably a neuroscientist in this room that could explain that. I mean, Proust, Proust that's the whole, you know, the nature of his whole examination is, I mean, uh, imagine, imagine it wasn't a Madeleine. Imagine it was like a you know, an old picture of some church in Cambrai that he, you know, he was standing and looking at the, you know, holding the deckled edge and saying, hmm, hmm. It just wouldn't have been the same. I don't know why. I mean, it's, it's one-dimensional. I mean, that's the simple answer. It, it doesn't. I mean, it did for Malcolm Jones. I mean, he... Yeah, but that you're... That, that, you're, you're, we're distinguishing between my pictures and pictures that other people have taken, like snapshots, right? Are we? Or, oh, my pictures. I'm sorry. Okay. So the question is, when I take a picture, does it, does it bring back? No. When I look at my pictures, I remember how damn hard it was, like setting up the tripod. <laughs> And, you know, that an 18-wheeler drove by and blew my camera over right in the middle of it. No, I can, I can only remember how difficult it was to get. So true. We're going to ask, I mean, I don't, this guy. Okay, that's fine. Um, you seem to have an incredible grip on death as a concept, and you seem to be very pragmatic with it. I just wanted to know... I think death has an incredible grip on me, just, <laughs> just for the record. Uh, this is probably a very more of a question, but do you have any kind of perception or plans for your own death? Well, I want to die in my sleep like everybody else, you know, before I become infirm or senile. 
right, after a really, really good gin and tonic, right? I just want to lie down and die exactly when I want to, right? Yeah, so you too, right? I mean, isn't that what everybody wants? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, in terms of my body, uh, yeah, I'd love it to be useful. I mean, I'd love to sign it over, but there's a lot of paperwork involved. I mean, I, I need to do it is what I'm saying. I'm not getting any younger, and it, I actually have to sit down and do the paperwork to, to sign it over to some institution. I think signing it over to the body farm would be appropriate, don't you? Yeah. All right. I'm reminding my husband. Would you make a little note about that for me? Okay. Done. Consider it done. A plan. A plan. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, well, thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Um, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.